This is the record that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Jesus said, I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Therefore, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for us. Paul said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Before we open up God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. To think that there were there was almost 4,000 years of history when most believers did not have a copy of the written word. And in much of the church age, that was true for most believers. They did not have a copy of your word as their own to treasure and to keep. There were some that did, but the scrolls and the codexes were expensive and difficult. And in later years, there were those who prevented believers from having their own copy of the Scriptures. So we are indeed privileged that we have uh, your word before us. We have good translations that we can read and be encouraged and strengthened by, and that it is your word that God the Holy Spirit uses Uh, to strengthen us, to mature us, to challenge us so that we can uh, grow as we partake of the milk and the meat of your word. So, Father, we pray that you would bless this time as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're continuing in our study of this topic of really walking worthy. That's the headline in chapter 4, verse 1, is to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And when we get down to where we are, the command is to walk in the light. And so we have discussed this to some degree, and today we're going to expand on it a little bit more. So just to remind you, there are three basic sections to uh, Ephesians. Uh, It starts with a salutation, ends with a close and a greeting, but in between, the three major sections have to do with the wealth of the believer, chapters 1 through 3, talking about what we have in Christ, our position in Christ. Now, that's so important. We took a couple of years at least to go through those three chapters, and that tells us what our assets are, who we are as as Christians, as believers, that God has put us into the body of Christ, that this is a whole new entity that has come into being in the in the history of the world, and that it was given birth to on the day of Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit descended and indwelt each and every believer at that time, and every believer since then at the instant of salvation is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
God lives in us. This is an incredible reality, and this is part of what God is doing in this dispensation through the church. And so we are a unique entity, and believers today have been given so much at salvation. It is, as Paul said in the opening verse of the first section, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So that first section deals with who we are and what we have, and now this section deals with what are we going to do with what we what we have. And we are to walk carefully in uh, verse, uh, uh, when you get down to 516, talks about walking in wisdom. And that's a good way to summarize everything because wisdom in Scripture isn't just academic knowledge. It's not the Greek idea of philosophical knowledge and being able to think uh, very abstract thoughts and think through various issues, but it's the idea of being able to understand what God has said, why he has said it, and how we are to live in light of what God has said and what he has done for us. Wisdom has to do with uh, skillful application. It's a Hebrew concept, not a Greek concept. So the only way that we can walk wisely as Christians is to be saturated with the Word of God. And that leads to the third section, which is the shortest of the three, which deals with our warfare. We are involved in a spiritual war, an angelic revolt that took place in eternity past. And to fail to understand that Uh, angelic revolt and its significance for us today is to be unable to answer a lot of the broader questions and issues uh, of life. Uh, That brought to mind a conversation I had with a a friend of mine who was an unbeliever, a Jewish man, and after not long after October 7th, we were talking, and he said, you know what I believe? I believe this is a lot bigger than just Israel versus Hamas or Israel versus Islam. There's a some kind of cosmic conflict going on. I haven't been able to follow that up but when we, because we were talking in a more public place, and I said, well, I can, I can expand on that for you. I said, I hope, he said, I hope so. So Finding the opportunity part of that warfare is that Satan doesn't want us to have those opportunities or take advantage of those. So we have to learn what God has given us in relation to fighting that spiritual warfare. So as I pointed out a minute ago, the opening statement in four one is that we are to walk worthy of our calling. Our calling has to do with that vocation that God has given us as a member of the body of Christ. This is has to do not only with a, a calling to a position, but the mandate for that position, which is goes back to the Great Commission. And it's articulated many different ways in Scripture other than what Jesus said when he told his disciples that uh, as you go forth, that they were to um, baptize and to teach all nations. And later Paul says in Philippians that we are to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And in this particular chapter, 
as we go through Ephesians uh, 5, it talks about the fact that, that as we are walking in the light, we are going to be exposing darkness, which doesn't mean we're going around like a legalist pointing out all the bad things that people are believing or doing, but that just by our very life, it exhibits the light of God uh, in contrast to the darkness that is around us. So this idea of walking worthy is then expanded by the next positive command, which is to walk by means of love. Now, I'm reminding you of some of these things because as we go into a couple of uh, uh, auxiliary passages today, we're going to see the correlation here. So remember this, first of all, Paul talks about, uh, gives the command to them for walking uh, by means of love, with the pattern being as Christ has loved us. And that is also then further defined as walking as children of light in our uh, current passage in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. When we read that, we read, for y'all were once darkness. So we're once darkness. In fact, it talks about darkness back in Ephesians chapter 4 and 17 to 24, talks about the, the fact that we were, uh, we were in darkness. So we were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It is our new identity, our new position. We're light. And we're supposed to shine forth as light. We do that by walking as a children, as a child of light. And then the next verse, for the fruit of the Spirit. So walking in the light, as we saw last time, is tantamount to walking by the Spirit, and it produces character transformation. We'll talk about that a little more today. And um, the result of that is that it gives us the ability to evaluate the issues of life on the basis of the absolute criterion of God's word by evaluating and determining what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So we have to have a standard there. And that word that I've translated, it's, uh, it's an awkward translation because it's an awkward grammar. But we, the word there is from a word... Uh, Dakimion is the noun, dokimazo is the verb. We've run into it many times, and it has to do with proving something to be of value. Uh, that's what is used, that's the word that is used in 1 Corinthians 3, talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and talking about the fact that all of our works are either wood, hay, and straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones, and the and the imagery is that of a fire, that all of our works are, are put to the fire, and that which has value uh, survives. It's go, uh, uh, analogous to gold, silver, and precious stones. But the word that is used there is it's tested, it's proved, it's evaluated for that which has value. So uh, this is the same word, and that's the concept here. As walking as a child of light, we are to evaluate uh, the circumstances around us, and uh, choosing that which is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. So I pointed out as we started three things. I've added a fourth one today. Three things that we need to understand this passage. The first is, what does the Bible teach about light? 
And I went through about 18 points on that, took a couple of lessons because there's a lot that the Bible says in this metaphor of light. Second was what the Bible teaches about our position in the light, our new identity, our new, uh, that it's part of the new man. We have a new identity in Christ. We are in the light. Third, we need to understand what it means and what the Bible teaches about our walk in the light. How do we walk in the light is the fourth point. What are the mechanics? How do we actually do that? What does the Scripture say? So that is what we will look at today. So just for a reminder, now I go over this because, number one, we have visitors at times. Number two, not everybody is here every Sunday. Number three, you don't remember too well what I taught last week. Sometimes I don't remember what I taught last week. Thank God for audio and the website. Because we get distracted with all kinds of things. So we need to be reminded of these things. And so just a brief review of what the Bible teaches about light and life and darkness. Scripture teaches that in the summary of the 14th point, that God is light. This is his essential nature. He dwells in unapproachable light. Second, that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus himself, his entry into the world brought light into darkness. John 3 says, and men love darkness rather than the light. And so there is this inclination in the uh, human soul to reject light and to uh, cloak itself in darkness. Then we saw that uh, Jesus' light uh, illuminates the world, dispels the darkness. It dispels the darkness in our souls as well. Fourth, we see that the darkness rejects the light. Fifth, but the one who comes to the light, who becomes a son of the light, are, are, is not able to abide in darkness. So we have to Understand this new identity means that we should live differently. We need to think differently. We need to act differently. We need to uh, think differently and emote differently than others. So last, we have to recognize Satan is the counterfeit of light. So there's all kinds of things out there that counterfeit as light that shimmer and glimmer and attract us, but they are just counterfeits. The only way to tell that is to know the truth of God's Word. Then we came to the 17th point, which was talking about our new legal position, the 1516 built up to this. Ephesians 5.8 tells us we are light in the Lord. First Thess 5.5, we are all sons of light and sons of the day. So we have our chart. On one side, we have the eternal realities. This deals with our our legal position before God. This is who we are. It is not always describing how we live. That's the other side, the temporal realities. So I have two white circles to talk to illustrate our position in light and then walking in the light. The left circle indicates our position in Christ, a very popular term for Paul, especially in Ephesians, that we are in Christ. That's our legal position. That is our our identity. We got there at the instant of salvation by being baptized by 
the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is called positional truth. It's our position in Christ, our new legal position. And that is reflected in the phrase, now you are light in the Lord. Romans 6, 3, Paul said, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, that means to be identified, when we go to a physical baptism and the person is plunged beneath the water, immersed in the water, and then comes out, is a picture of a transaction that occurs at the instant of our salvation that we don't experience. It's a legal transaction. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that instant, uh, we're a new creature in Christ. We have a new identity. We're in Christ. That's part of being in the church. In the Old Testament, they did not have anything that's comparable to that other than the fact that they were uh, in Abraham, but that didn't guarantee salvation. That only meant that they were part of this, the Abrahamic covenant, but it had nothing to do with their uh, salvation or their spirituality. So we're baptized or identified into the death of Christ, and verse 4 goes on to say that it involves the burial and resurrection. Therefore, we were buried with him. That's being illustrated by being plunged into the water. Uh, buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of light. So coming out of the water is a picture of the fact that we have newness of life. And see, the reason I go over that is a lot of you have been baptized. A lot of you have been baptized by me. Some of you have been baptized here, and then you got baptized again in Israel. But... I always teach this because that's what this the purpose is, just like in the Lord's table. And I'm amazed at how few pastors really explain either the Lord's table or baptism. And I've had a lot of people tell me that they've never had anyone growing up in whatever church it was, never had anyone explain the Lord's table before. And I've seen this where all of a sudden they do it and they never tell you what, why, how, or anything. But these are all designed to teach certain key principles. And baptism particularly illustrates a very abstract thing, which is our identification with Christ, which Paul says is a foundation for the command to walk in newness of life. So it's a great sermon in terms of that physical ritual. The 17th point was that our experience contradicts that sometimes. And we sometimes are not walking like a child of the light. So the basic command that everything should be sort of summarized with, I think, is Galatians 5.16, that we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. That, I think, summarizes everything else comes under that, and including walk as children of light. And when we're walking by the Spirit, as we'll see when we get to Ephesians 5.18, he fills us with the Word of God. And we know that because we compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, and walking by the uh, being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is comparable to the command to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3.16. So those two things produce the same results, which means they're two sides of the same coin. 
But when we sin, we're no longer walking as a child of light. We're walking in darkness, so we are no longer enjoying that fellowship, that partnership that we have with God in our spiritual growth until we confess sin and we're cleansed of sin and restored to a position where we can walk uh, by walk in the light. 1 John 1, 5 says that uh, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then we have the two statements in verse 6 and 7, the contrast. On the one hand, we can walk in darkness, and on the other hand, we can walk in light. And we I pointed out last time that we see this contrast between two, one of two different things all the way through Scripture. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. But walk as children of light. So walk. Uh, the fact that we are light in the Lord is our new identity in Christ, and walking as children of light is our experience. We're either walking as a child of light or we're walking in darkness. Now, some of you, you think that, well, that's pretty elementary. Well, it may be for you. But for most Christians, they don't get it. They're never taught this. In fact, if you're taught from a strict lordship position, 1 John 1, 9 is viewed as a salvation verse, not as a spiritual life verse. And I can't tell you how many people who have grown up under really solid teaching will get involved because of wherever they live. They listen on the radio to someone like John MacArthur. And for John MacArthur, 1 John 1, 9 is a salvation verse because he takes a Reformed or Calvinist uh, interpretation of First John. So that's what goes on in the world outside the walls of this congregation. So First John one six said, "Yes, we can walk in darkness." First uh, Corinthians three one through three. Yes, you can walk like a mere man. Uh, what Paul is saying there is, you, instead of walking by the Spirit, uh, you can walk like an unsaved person. But you realize that in Reformed theology, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. They reject that whole concept of a carnal Christian. And uh, all of that, these things get tied together, and they're part of what we're going to get into. I'm, what I'm doing right now, you say, well, Robbie's taking a lot of time uh, reviewing a lot of things. Because, and the reason I'm doing that is because when we get down to uh, Ephesians five seventeen and 18, and start really taking apart um, what it means to be filled by the Spirit and the contrast between a spiritual, uh, a spiritual person and a, car- a spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian, then we're going to get into this. So I'm, I'm building this for you so that uh, I don't, I'm not going to drop a ton of this on you all at one time. But it's important to understand those those uh, distinctions are out there. So then we talked about um, our walk in the light last time, and we talked about the fruit, which was in Ephesians five nine. And just to quickly review this, there's a there's a textual variant. Some ancient manuscripts have the fruit of the light; others have fruit of the spirit. And I've looked over the textual evidence a number of times over the years, and I, I, frankly, I think the evidence is kind of split from the external evidence, and a lot of people just based on the 
internal evidence, which mentions walking as a child of light, they think, well, light ought to be there. And so this is what I explained there in that paragraph, that some manuscripts have light there, and this, um, uh, some people could see that the, what the happened was the copyist saw light there. Let's just, uh, this is assuming light was in the original. And then because they saw the similarity with Ephesians, I mean, with Galatians 5, 6, uh, 5, 22 and 23, they put light there, maybe in the margin, or maybe they just copied light down, I mean, a spirit down there. And so that's how spirit came to be in some of the manuscripts, but the original was light. On the other hand, uh, the same kind of thing could happen uh, where you looked at it and it was spirit, but you thought that doesn't that doesn't fit. He mentions being a child of the light earlier, so let's put light in there. That makes more sense. Or maybe it was just a note that this uh, copyist put in the margin later got inserted. It could go either way. And the way I've solved this is that it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because when you look at these walking commands, they're all talking about the same thing. You have um, this contrast between two absolute positions. You're either living like an unbeliever, walking like a mere man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or you're living like a believer. You're a spiritual person. You're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. Another passage is it's abiding in Christ or you're not abiding in Christ. And then in Romans 8 and as well as in Galatians 5, 16 and following, you're either walking by the Spirit or according to the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh, by the sin nature um, or according to the flesh. So you always have these contrasts. And what we learn by looking at these various passages is that they all end up talking about what is produced by the person who walks in darkness or the person who walks by the Spirit. So whether you're talking about walking in the light, the same kind of things are said. So John fifteen five, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. So that abiding in me and I in him is a picture of fellowship, of that partnership in our Christian life. And the result is bearing much, much fruit. And what we see here, and this is so important, this is such a fundamental principle, that the fruit in John 15 isn't described. It just says, well, bear, either bear fruit, much fruit, or more, much more fruit. But the reality is that when we can compare these passages, John 15 with Romans 8 and Galatians 5, 16 and following, and Ephesians 5, what we see is a contrast between two ways of living, light and darkness, uh, abiding in Christ or not abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit or walking according to the sin nature. And then there is a list of characteristics of the one who is walking by the Spirit, expressed as the fruit of the Spirit, 
It's walking in light. It's expressed as the fruit of the light, which we have here. If it, if you're living like an unbeliever, then the sin nature's in control and you are producing the works of the flesh, which are described in, in um, Galatians uh, 5, 19 and following. So the reality is that walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, are each said in these separate passages to be the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit. And what that means is they must be equivalent. If they, if you have one thing over here that is the sole necessary uh, precondition for producing fruit, and then you have a similar phrase, but it's different over here, and that's the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit, and then you have a third set of commands, and that's the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit, then those three commands have to be talking about the same thing. So this is where we are. So what is fruit production? Fruit production is described the characteristics in Galatians 5:22 and 23 and Ephesians 5:9 is character transformation to be Christ-like, conformed to the image of Christ. And so that's the importance of John's commands in 1 John 1, 6, and 7, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and then we have this fellowship, this partnership with one another. Okay, now we get to, uh, I'm going to skip through uh, 5, 8, and 9. We covered those aspects. These are qualities or characteristics. And to talk about what the Bible teaches about how to walk in the light. How do I walk in the light? Where's the light switch? How do I walk in the light? We default to walking in darkness. That's the sin nature. And when we are uh, disobey God, we just default to letting the sin nature control us. Now in John 17, 17 and 19, we have two very important statements by the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17 is the true Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not what people are taught, uh, our Father who art in heaven. It is John 17. Uh, Jesus is giving a model prayer for the disciples. This is his prayer, his high priestly prayer. This is what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested by, uh, by the Roman soldiers to go to the cross. And so among the other things that he prays, he says to the Father, and the King James translates it, sanctify them uh, in, by means of truth, or sanctify them in truth. That word sanctify is a translation of the same root words that for, for holy. They can indicate holy. In some passages you have consecrated. I think consecrated is an archaic word. We don't use it very much. But if something is consecrated, it is set apart for a specific purpose. That's the idea. And that really does reflect better the meaning of the original uh, Hebrew and Greek words. We always have to go back to the Hebrew word because holiness or kadosh as it's defined in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word, uh, sets the stage for what they mean in the New Testament. They don't change the meaning of the concept. 
and it has to do with something that is set apart to the service of God. So you can refer to the the physical um, vessels or instruments in the in the tab- tabernacle or, or or in the temple. So you have the candlesticks and you have the uh, various uh, uh, utensils that were used for putting out the flame on the on the uh, menorah. You have the menorah itself, which is a physical object. You have the uh, table of showbread, and these are just, you know, these are just uh, physical objects. They are not personal objects. They don't have any volition. They're not good or bad. They're they don't have morality. So when people get the idea that something is holy, those same words for holy are applied to these instruments that are used in the in the uh, worship in the ritual worship in the Old Testament the knives they're blessed and they're set apart to the service of God but and that's what it means to be holy set apart to the service of God and so when Jesus prays this prayer and he is using the Greek word uh, and it's hagiazo he is praying that the Father would set us apart, and it's done by means of your truth. And then he defines what truth is and where truth can be found. He says, your word is truth. We live in a culture today that has rejected the concept of truth. Everybody has their own truth. There's no such thing as a universal absolute truth, uh, and uh, that's an um, contradiction in and of itself, because if you say there's no such thing as an absolute truth, you just stated an absolute truth that's self-refuting. But we have to understand we live in postmodernism. We live in an inherently irrational culture. And what we see as we live and operate more and more in the realm of irrationality then the result of that is people start saying that they can do all kinds of things. They can create their own reality. They can be who they are. They can assign their own gender. It has nothing to do with biology. They can invent a world that is uh, not created by God but is the product of time plus chance. They redefine uh, various uh, physical laws of reality that were once recognized, but now they act as if they don't really exist because they've rejected the whole concept of what is truth. And Romans 1 says they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And this becomes a, a, a mental procedure that pretty soon becomes a habit. And by suppressing truth, what happens is we divorce ourselves from reality. And so we've lost touch with reality as a culture so that we can say on the one hand, without lying, the borders are secure. And at the same time, we see hundreds of thousands of immigrants, illegal immigrants coming across the river. But we have the borders secure. And you and I sit there and go, that's self-contradictory. Well, you have your truth. They have their truth. It's all relative. And that's why the world is going nuts is because they bought into irrationality as a legitimate way of thinking. 
But Jesus said that we are to be set apart by means of truth, and that God's word is truth. That's where absolutes reside. And then two verses later in that prayer, he says, and for their sakes, that's talking about us, for our sake, he says, I set myself apart. That's what he did on the cross. He set himself apart to the service of God to die on the cross in our place and to pay the penalty for our sins. He set himself apart for a purpose that we also may be set apart by the truth. So what this is telling us is the thing that should, one of the things that should set Christians apart from everybody else is the truth. We believe in absolute truth. And in our culture, that makes us an enemy of the culture because they have rejected what is fundamental or what should be fundamental to a Christian identity. Romans 2.8 identifies the unsaved and says to those who are self-absorbed and do not obey the truth, that's my translation, but obey unrighteousness because they've been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness in Romans 1, indignation and wrath. Wrath is not eternal condemnation. Wrath is always a term that refers to God's divine judgment in time, in history. It's divine discipline on a people, on a nation, on an individual. So what should the result be? Well, look at these passages in when we talk about these, these phrases, walking according to the Spirit, abiding in Christ, uh, walking in the light. In John fifteen seven, in the passage that describes the Christian life, the Christian fellowship is abiding in Christ. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, abiding in me is what we would commonly call, or many people would say, well, that's just being in fellowship. But it's not just a one-sided thing. If you abide, if we abide in Christ and he abides in us, and that relates to obedience to the word, because if we sin, he's not abiding in us. He may indwell us, but he's not abiding in us. That's a relational concept uh, related to producing spiritual growth. In John seventeen seventeen, which we just looked at, uh, the focus, again, is on being sanctified by means of the truth. So that, that's the word. That's the, the Christ's words abiding in us. That's when we're uh, uh, obeying what he has said. And then in Romans 12, 2, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is our thinking. So it has to have thought. It has to have content. We have to learn to think. Think the content has to be different, but how we think also. We can't think in a in the way a mystical format like the people around us do, which is irrationalism. We have to think in terms of the logic of Scripture, not an independent rationalism, but the logic of Scripture. So to understand this a little more, uh, just a couple of things to break it down. First of all, we must remember that Jesus is the incarnate word. He is the incarnate logic. Incarnate means in flesh, okay? Jesus, as the incarnate logos, 
is the incarnation of truth itself. He is truth itself embodied in a human body. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Again, notice the connection between truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what he is saying about himself is that he is the truth. He is not a truth. He is the truth. He is the truth as the logos of God. Now, what does this word logos mean? The logos relates to communication. It relates to reason. We talk about logic in English. Well, that word logic comes from the Greek word logos. So logic, we talk about studying things. So we study about life. We study biologos, biology, the study of life. So it's a study, it has to do with thought and reason, and we have to reason according to the logos of God. Ephesians 4.21 emphasizes this truth in Jesus. Now, I'm going to, I, a couple of things, you may think, well, that's a minor point, but a couple of things that I, I picked up on here as I was going back reading this uh, this morning. In Ephesians 4.21, we read, if indeed... You have heard him and have been taught by him, referring to Jesus, as truth is in Jesus. Now, in in Greek, the word truth does not have an article with it. Now, we think that the, because in English, the use or presence of an article makes something definite. The, its absence would make it indefinite or um or we use the indefinite article, A. So it's not as a truth is in Jesus, it is truth. And in Greek, though, when the article isn't present, it can have one of several different senses, but one of the most common is it's focusing on the quality of the noun, the quality of the noun. So when you go to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no article with God, so it's emphasizing quality, that this is God, the God. So I have translated this in the past, the truth, because in English you would add the article to specify a distinctive truth, the truth, the absolute truth. But it's it, the emphasis is the quality of this truth, and so I didn't put the in there this time. I chose to just put it in uppercase letters. Truth is in Jesus. You want to know truth? You have to know what Jesus taught. You have to know how Jesus thinks. First Corinthians two sixteen. We have the mind of Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, Ephesians four twenty two says that we have already put off the old man. We have already put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, our identity in Adam, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Now, we spent a lot of time on this, but I'm just going back to connect some of the dots for us. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, where, where does the spiritual life take place? It takes place in our thinking. We are to renew our thinking according to Romans 12.2. Here we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind or our, our, our thinking. Our thought life, 
what we think and how we think is to be transformed or renewed by the Word of God. And then in verse 24, it goes on to say, and that you have already put on the new man. That's the correct translation. You don't find English translations that get that right. And that refers to our new identity in Christ. Remember back in um, Ephesians chapter 2, around verses 17 to 20, it talks about the fact that, that we are, that you had Jew in the Old Testament, you had Jews, you had Gentiles. But now we are brought together in Christ at the cross as one new man. That term defines it. It's the body of Christ. You were one new man, a new body. That's what's in that, that verse. That defines the new man as the body of Christ. So as soon as we trust in Christ as Savior, we're baptized by the Spirit, and we are one new man, which was created. Every time you have the new man mentioned, it always talks about God's creation, which was create, created according to, and there in an unusual place, it has an article in front of Theos, God, emphasizing this, the God of the Bible, which was created according to the God of the Bible. And then it's really an awkward phrase, and I, I, I think that the um, Holman Christian Standard Bible has the best translation of these words, and you'll see that different translations uh, put them together in different ways. But it was created according to God, to the God, in righteousness and purity of the truth. And that first end should be translated by means of. So we're created by means of righteousness. And that's referring to the um, imputation of righteousness in justification. So I've retranslated this, Galatians 2.16. Uh, it's usually translated. It's not a, not a wrong translation, but this brings something out a little more. Uh, Normally it's translated because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That word justified could also very legitimately be translated declared righteous. So that's what justification is. So I'm going to translate it that way. Because we know that a man is not declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be declared righteous. So when it says in Ephesians 4.24 that we're uh, created according to God by means of righteousness, it's referring to this creation at the instant that we trust in Christ, a number of things happen simultaneously, but we are we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and we are declared righteous because we possess the righteousness of Christ. Second, by means of truth, then, uh, goes on, by means of the purity of truth, goes on to describe the Word of God. We are regenerated by the Word of God. And... Um, We've gone to John 17, 17, and 19, which talk about how it is God's truth that sets us apart. The first setting apart is when we trust Christ as Savior, and that happens when we are placed in Christ. 
The second occurs in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, which is what John 17, 17, and 19 is talking about. But a more clear passage is in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. You might want to turn there uh, in your Bibles. First uh, Peter one twenty three. I'll pick up the context in a minute. Says, having been born again, it's a perfect tense of the verb. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God. See, we have already been born again. How? Through the word of God. It's the word of God that has power. Somewhere, it's, I think some of you have heard that before. That the word of God is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12. But here it is, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. That's the seed. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then there's a quote from Isaiah 40, because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, this is the word or message. It's the word logos there, as I'll show you in a minute. This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So we have this verb here, First uh, Peter one twenty three, having been born again. Uh, but it, this sentence in one twenty three has a content. Context. So in 122, we read, since you have purified your souls in the past by obeying the truth through the Spirit. Notice that. You obey the truth through God the Holy Spirit. And then it talks about the sincere or genuine love of the brethren, love one another. Now, where have we heard this love one another before? Walk in love, Ephesians 5 2, as Christ has loved us. That's why I pointed that out when we when I mentioned it earlier, you see the same kind of context here. Uh, Peter uses different words, but he's talking about the same thing, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. Why? Because you have been born again. It's a perfect passive participle, which indicates it's already happened in the past and completed. You have already been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Through the Word of God, this is the logos of God. This is in the bottom, uh, the bottom box on the slide. Through the Word of God, the Word of God is the means, one of the means, also the Spirit of God, that God causes us to be born again. It's through the Word of God we learn the message of God. How this is what we see. Um, in the uh, coming verses. So it's through the word of God that lives and abides forever. But when you get to verse 25, it says, but the word of the Lord, quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, says the word of the Lord endures forever. Here it's a different Greek word. Logos can be a written word. It can be a thought. It can be a spoken word. But rhema is a spoken word. And here it is rhema, plus the main verb, which is the good news which was proclaimed to you. That's just the verb evangelizo, where we get our word evangelism. And it means to proclaim the good news. So I've translated it that way. Now, this is the rhema, the spoken word, which by the good news which was proclaimed to you. 
So they, you hear the gospel, and then you respond by trusting in Christ, and then God instantly imputes righteousness to you and declares you righteous. But this comes through the word of God. It's not mysticism. God doesn't wave his magic wand. Uh, God doesn't sprinkle you with pixie dust. It just, you believe, and then God transforms you, and it's done through the instrumentality of the message of God, the Word of God. When we get to James, James 118 and 121 present the same concept. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. That's talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. Phase one, salvation from the penalty of sin. Uh, by the word of truth, we believe in Christ and we're brought forth, we're regenerated. In James one twenty one, he then um, uh, segues or shifts from talking about the phase one, to, and now he's talking about phase two. Lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness. This is a Greek grammatical construction where the first part of this sentence just basically means this is the precondition for the command. And the command is to receive with humility the implanted word. That's the seed. Remember, we saw that seed concept back in 1 Peter one twenty three. not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That's the implanted word uh, of James one twenty one. But laying aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness is basically talking about confession of sin. You confess sin, and then you are able to receive the word implanted, which is able to, and most translations will say, save your soul. But that's an idiom in the in the Greek. Save doesn't mean phase one salvation. It's phase two, and it better it's better translated deliver your life. So, Here's our chart so we can remember this. At phase one, we trust in Christ. We're justified. This happens in an instant. Phase two is the spiritual life. Phase three is glorification. So at phase one, you trust in Christ. You're saved from the eternal penalty of sin. But in phase two, you're saved or delivered from the power of sin, so that saves your life. So you, rather than living like a spiritually dead person, you can now live in light of the life that God has given you. And then in phase three, we're saved or delivered from the presence of sin as we're face to face with the Lord. So the instrument that God uses is his word. How many times in the last week have you been in God's word? How many times in the last week has God's word been floating around in your mind? That's the key. It's the word of God. That's what's alive and powerful. In Ephesians 1.13, we read, In him you also trusted after you heard what? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. Philippians 2.16 says that you are able, if you go to 15, it's... uh, it's to shine forth his lights in the midst of a wicked and corrupt uh, generation by holding fast to the word of life. It's the word of God that's important. Colossians 1.15, uh, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. 
So how do you walk in the light? It's very simple. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Walking in the light is to walk in the light of God's word. But you have to remember it's not the word of God apart from the spirit of God. And it's not the spirit of God apart from the word of God. It is the spirit of God plus the word of God that strengthens and matures the child of God. It is both. If you're not walking by the Spirit and you're walking according to the flesh, then you can have your daily Bible reading and prayer and everything else, and it's just the work of the flesh. It has no eternal value. We have to be in right relationship with the Lord, walking in the light, and then God uses the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in order to uh, mature us. And so what we're going to do this morning after we pray is that we are going to sing the hymn, number 349, Trust and Obey. And I wanted to read the opening opening verse. This is a great hymn. We're not going to sing the fourth verse. The fourth verse, he, he uh, reveals his uh, holiness theology, so we're going to skip that one. But what he says in the other verses is just so biblical. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on the way. How do we walk with the Lord? It's in the light of his word. See, what other command of walking do we have in 2 Corinthians 5? We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by trusting him. So we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. What a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will. Listen. While we do his good will, in other words, while we are doing what God says to do in right relationship with him, he continues to abide with us. He abides with us still. This is great doctrine. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. In the second verse, he says, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. We do not live in a feelings of negativity and discouragement because there's clouds on our path because we have the light of God's word. His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear nor a sigh nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Then I'll skip to the, um, oh no, the third verse, not a burden we bear nor a sorrow we share, but our toil he does quickly repay. Not a grief, nor a loss, nor not a frown, nor a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, notice it brings in that idea, abiding in Christ, fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by, the, by his side in the way. What he says we will do, some people think that's legalism. That's not legalism. Legalism is is distorting all of that. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. I have thought for decades, trust and obey basically summarizes the Christian life. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to 
be in your word to come to understand that because of the cross, because Christ died for our sins, and because we believe in Christ, it is through our faith that we are saved, we are justified, we are given new life in Christ, not because of anything that we do or because of our personality or what nation we're in or anything else. It is our focus on Christ's work on the cross and our belief in that that saves us, and that you have done this by the preaching, the proclamation of the good news of the word. And so, Father, we thank you for this and understanding that when we want to walk in the light, we have to walk in the light of your word, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you will help us to remember this and to uh, apply this in our thinking on a day-to-day basis. In Christ's name, amen.